Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Chaloner and you join us on a cloudy autumn day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's show, I'm delighted to be joined by Gemma Antrobus. Gemma is the owner of Hazelmere Travel, an award-winning luxury travel company based in Surrey. Uh, Gemma, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to welcome you onto the airwaves. Um, whole reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. And normally we would dive straight into that subject. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it is appropriate that we start there because it has hung over us like a dark cloud throughout 2020 and posed probably one of the most significant challenges of our time for leaders in all walks of life. But for yourselves working within the travel industry during this time, to what extent has it affected you and your business? The COVID situation has been absolutely devastating for travel, and I don't think that that's any secret. And there isn't a, a corner of the travel industry that it hasn't touched with, with near devastating effects. From the minute we went into lockdown, our businesses ceased. Um, we were all faced with, obviously, decisions like many other industries about closing offices, making sure our staff were safe. Um, taking advantage of the furlough scheme. But what we also had to do at that same time when we were you know, faced with the prospect of um, this massive change was also worry about where our clients were in the world, who we had traveling right at that time that we needed to repatriate, and who we've got traveling in the very near future. So we were faced with a very unique situation whereby our workload practically quadrupled overnight, yet because of the financial implication of what was about to happen, we lost practically all of our staff to the furlough scheme. So as amazing as it was in saving jobs for the future, um, it caused a very unique situation for the travel industry where we were put under massive amounts of pressure um, in, in very unique ways that we've never felt before. Um, so, you know, the initial lockdown period, which I think many people in the travel industry expected to be the worst part of this, um, you know, was just actually phase one of, of what we had to deal with as an industry and, and a very difficult phase. And um, mm. many of us, I know for my business, we've gone down to, you know, absolute bare bones to ensure that the, com- the company is, you know, still going to be able to bring staff on after the furlough scheme. But what that meant for those still working in the business was, you know, 24-7 working, contacting clients the other side of the world, trying to bring people back, um, dealing with refunds, uh, rearranging holidays and really something that no matter what we planned for contingencies for, you know, things going wrong and everything we'd all dealt with in travel before, nothing prepared us for the gravitas of, of what happened with having so few people in our businesses to help deal with that mm. that impact. And even in the long term future, say we fast forward one or two years where COVID-19 is hopefully no longer an issue by then and a vaccine or cure for the virus has been found. Do you think that the effects of the pandemic will linger over the travel industry for the long term and it will remain subdued for some time? I think and I'm very positive about the future that once we have a means by which people can travel freely and whether that's that miraculous we go back to the way it used to be and and you just have a choice of where to go on holiday and and that's the only thing you have to think about or whether it is a case that you need to have a vaccine to access certain countries the appetite for travel is still huge and I see it all the time the difficulty that we have is the mixed messaging that 
the um, consumers have been given over the past six months about, you know, where is safe to go, the changing um, travel corridors on a weekly basis, people that were very confident when we came out of lockdown in, in July time that wanted to travel over the summer period very quickly lost their confidence because of the government decisions on a weekly basis of who was in, who was out, um, who remained on a corridor where you had to quarantine from. So that has had a huge impact on business right now, but we still see the appetite for, for travel, for people still wanting to go away, but they're not able to. So I do believe that you know in two years' time, People will be traveling in the same manner they always um, used to, perhaps with different um, restrictions in terms of, as we talked about, a vaccine or um, perhaps it's visa restrictions. I'm not entirely sure what it looks like, but people will travel. Um, you know, we're a very intrepid um, nation. Uh, we want to explore the world, and that's one of the wonderful things that we've always had. But the problem is, the travel industry in the UK has to get to that point, mm. and we're an absolute breaking point at the minute with a furlough scheme coming to an end. And possibly um, we, we're an industry that needs the most targeted response from the government. And we have been calling for that for months since the beginning of lockdown and are not getting it. Um, and, and whilst the measures put in place are helpful to some businesses, they're not particularly helpful for the travel industry. And, and it's very, very sad what is happening now with um, sailors of some very successful names and the amount of people that you know are just about to become redundant because there are so few places that our businesses can send people at the minute. So we need revenue to be able to re-employ people. And that's just not what we have right now. Mm. It is a very difficult time for the industry and the government has to heed the warnings that are coming from it and really get this right. Absolutely. And although it is such a testing time, is there anything perhaps that you can take almost as a positive from this experience in that in managing a crisis, maybe you've learned something about yourself and the industry as a whole? I think the industry as a whole and, and, and certainly for myself, we've, you know, we've learned to become more resilient than we ever have before. You know, I've been running a business and doing jobs within my business that I've never done before in terms of, you know, going back to the basics and selling holidays and, and bringing back, you know, talking to clients directly, which when you run a company is not often the job that you do on a daily basis. So my skill set has developed. Obviously, that's not um, how it would be in normal times, but we've all learned in the travel industry that you just have to roll up your sleeves and do what you have to do to save your business and save your staff's careers, because that's what we've all worked so hard for and look after your clients at the same time. So yes, we've all learned um, some resilience, how how that impacts mental health in the long-term future, I'm not entirely sure, but you know, from adversity always comes opportunity. Mm. And those of us that are entrepreneurial are, you know, have always looked at ways to you know grow our businesses diversify into different lines of business and so that's what many people in the travel industry do anyway we're entrepreneurs um but you know it's some of those ideas especially when they're travel related are hampered because of you know what we can physically actually do and physically sell right now um so yes long term um, lots of positivity we just need to make sure we can get there Exactly right. And um, I can imagine that when you took ownership of the uh, the company um, five years ago, that you'd never expected to face a challenge of this uh, magnitude at the time. But just going back to that sort of period, uh, Gemma, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I do understand that you were MD of Hazelmere Travel before you took ownership of the company yourself five years ago. What was the inspiration behind that? What made you think that taking on the company yourself and doing things your way was going to be the way forward for you? 
I'd always, I'd, I'd been with Hazelmere Travel for about eight years before um, I bought the business. And it was always a conversation that was had from the very inception that the former owners would eventually want to um, sell. And at the time being, you know, a young entrepreneurial person, I wanted to have the you know, first dibs on that opportunity. Um, of course, not knowing what it looks like until it comes to it. Um, but what I felt was that I'd worked so hard for a business and that I wanted that to be mine and, you know, to be able to um, make even more decisions myself for the growth and diversity of the business um, and make that my future legacy or part of my future legacy. So, you know, we all um, work hard in travel and not everyone wants to own a business, but it's always been something that I wanted to do. Um, I'd started a number of um different initiatives within the business during my time as MD. And really, I'd done those because the um, the future was me owning the company at the end of the day. And so I wanted to see those through. Um, but yes, five years ago, never did I ever imagine that we would be in this position. Um, I don't think anybody did. Absolutely. And um, taking it away from sort of crisis at the moment, if we think about the role of a leader, if I do say the word leader to you, just to touch on the topic a bit more broadly, what does that word leader literally mean to yourself? What do you think a role, a, the role of a leader actually is? To me, in its most basic terms, the role of a leader is to is to direct um, their, their team um, in terms of they are someone who... Um, makes decisions based on um, information that they gather from within the business, outside of the business, and always is doing the right thing for their clients and for their staff. A leader is someone who earns respect from the people that um, they work for in terms of, so for me, that's clients, and for the people that work with them, so that's your team. And together, a leader helps to bring out the the best in the team that they have. And a leader also helps to ensure longevity for the business that they um, that they own and run. And in your position, of course, leaders have had to step up during the last few months and really inspire and keep people motivated during a time of crisis like this. But when you need to sort of seek out a little bit of inspiration and motivation for yourself, and there isn't anybody really above you to consult as such, as the case with employees at a business, where is it that you tend to go looking for that as and when you need it? I have two places that I go for that. I go to um, various peers within the travel industry who are not official mentors, but who I consider to be people who have helped guide me to the position that I am in now. And the other person I turn to is my husband, um, someone who obviously is heavily invested in our business because it's our family business um, and who always has a different point of view, a different perspective, and someone who is you know, well-educated, well-read, and often helps to just ground me and um, give me that um, different idea to think about, different perspective, or that push to say, you know, when things are down, it will get better. We think of the bigger picture and, um, and what's going to happen, as we talked about earlier, in a couple of years' time and where we're going to be at that point. And at that point, you know, as far as we're concerned, we will be successful. We will be building our business back to where it came from. And uh, those are the important things to remember is the end goal and the bigger picture. Mm. So, of course, over the next 12 months, of course, you're aiming to be a successful business and really build yourselves back up to where you were. Um, But over the next 12 months, what can you see on the horizon for the wider industry? And what are you really hoping is achieved by this time next year? What has to happen in, in, in immediate effect is change. And that's change from the government in terms of the advice 
that we are given in terms of operating holidays. Um, and with that will come confidence with, from our clients. And what we will see is a, is a much more um, a, a reliancy on travel industry professionals. I think a lot of people, consumers who have, you know, taken their travel plans uh, as extensive as they may be into their own hands will now be really looking to um, go back to an agency, to an operator, somebody who has that in-depth knowledge. Because I think what they have seen is that, you know, relying on Google or the Internet just isn't sufficient enough when Mm. things go wrong. And if things can go wrong, um, we've seen that, you know, no one ever expected this to happen, but it did. So I think that's what's got to happen to start with. And once confidence comes back as an industry, we need to do everything that we've done before. And that's just proved to people our worth in terms of our knowledge and putting together those most unique experiences for clients because that's what they come to us for. And they come to us to make them that they can't and ensure that they go exceptionally smoothly and with all the new hoops to jump through and paths to navigate that's part of our job if it's a case that we you know need to advise clients on how to fill out forms um and Mm. get a pcr test which is what we're having to do now that's what we will do and through that the confidence in travel will come back it's a trickle-down effect as soon as people start to see their friends their relatives traveling again having wonderful experiences it inspires you to do it yourself because it's not as scary as it's made out to be and um you know the world is a wonderful place to be explored it certainly is and i'll certainly be keeping an eye on the uh, the industry um over the uh, the next few months it looks to grapple with this uh, new normal and really build itself back up and let's hope that we're not going to be in this for the long haul yet um Gemma, i have to say it's been a real real pleasure to welcome you onto the program to share your views not just on leadership but also on what's uh, going on in the world at the moment and just given how many variables there still are in this i think it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in the next year and welcome you back onto the program just to see how things are coming along and we can reassess just what's happened in the time between that would be wonderful i'd really like that i'd welcome that opportunity as well Gemma. it's been a real pleasure having you join us today and most importantly until we do touch base again hopefully please do continue to take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on thank you and you I'd also reiterate that message to all of our listeners tuning in today. Do be considerate of others and look after yourselves during this time because it makes a real, real difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure to welcome Gemma Antrobus onto the programme today. She is the owner, of course, of Hazelmere Travel in Surrey. Next up on the programme, it's time to hand over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, having held various senior positions in the cabinet of former Prime Minister Tony Blair and served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the Upper House of Parliament as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough in August of 2015. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him and that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the 
government help, I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm -hmm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? 
Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 
uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of 
experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape 
that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June, 
this obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, 
confident and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, 
he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, the thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.